The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Rockheads, put down the can of zombie spray and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Jeff Maciolik, here to announce show number 199 with guest Josh Holmes, recorded live Friday, October 6th, 2006. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and now offering a whole suite of on-site and remote classes in .NET 2.0 technologies. Online at www.franklins.net. And by Telerik RAD Controls, the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET web applications. Online at www.telerik.com. Support is also provided by Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience. Online at www.devexpress.com. And by Code Magazine, the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com And now, the man who reigns Carl Franklin! Thank you, thank you very much, Jeff, and welcome to another stellar episode of .NET Rocks. This is episode 199, is it not, Richard Campbell? Yes, indeed it is, and I think I'm just about done, right? I get to go home after this? <laughs> Uh, you said that at 150. <laughs> you said that on I the road think... show last year. Well, yeah, at the end of 20 shows on the road, I was ready to go home. I think I'm stuck with you. I think you're right. And we, so aren't we all. But that's good. Hey, do, Richard, do you remember when uh, we said a few weeks ago that we wanted to encourage people to send us some flames? Cause yes, we were feeling, I recall that. We were feeling too much love. Too much love. So we encourage some of our listeners to flame us. Actually, a couple people took us seriously and sent us some uh, suggestions, some criticism. So it actually worked out pretty good. But uh, we did get a few creative flames, and I want to read one now. This is from uh, Shannon Siverston, and he says uh, the subject is e of his email is negative feedback from a loyal fan. <laughs> so you want some negative feedback. Note I started the sentence with so in attempt to fit in with DNR fans. Nice. I was going to take the easy route and just copy-paste in some slash dot comments and replace Microsoft with .NET Rocks, but then I realized I have some serious issues with .NET Rocks and how it's ruining my life. <laughs> Itemized below for your convenience. Nice. Number one, Rory Blythe. You let him out, you figure out how to put him back. <laughs> <laughs> Seriously, this guy, who appears to be a bad mix of Bill Gates, Prince, and Oliver Twist, <laughs> thinks that G-I-F should be pronounced GIF? Tell me, Rory, how do you pronounce gizmo, huh? Eh? Oh, and thanks for the advice about how to get my daughter to understand that she has two grandmothers. She says to tell you she has friends in the first grade that can make life very difficult for you. And stop it with the parentheses, parentheses, within parentheses, within parentheses, and parentheses, parentheses, parentheses. I'm constantly going back through the sentence to make sure there's enough closing parentheses, thanks to Excel's parentheses shell shock. <laughs> Number two, the tablet PC giveaway. And I think he's referring to the giveaway we did a couple of years ago. Where we gave away yeah. a tablet PC. Right. I didn't win. 
Crap, 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 crap. <laughs> I'm still typing away on my crappy P2 laptop that's missing the backspace key and sometimes refuses to print the I and J keys. That really sucks when your password is one word. It's not pronounced GIF, you freak of nature. <laughs> Number three, Richard the Drunkard Rain Man Campbell. Oh, nice. Thanks for making me feel stupid. <laughs> it's not enough that he's got some substantial computer knowledge. He's got to spout out some arcane tidbit of knowledge every week on some unrelated subject, even when he's drunk. Who needs Google when you have Richard on speed dial? <laughs> Number four, my job. I'm a mechanical engineer, and I used to really like my job. Then I started listening to .NET Rocks. Now I get all psyched up about .NET and how cool it would be to be doing some ASP.NET or DirectX or smart client programming. I can't wait to leave work to get home and do some twiddling with Visual C Express. Now, you could do me a favor and talk down the whole programming with .NET thing and how it really sucks building cool apps all day long. <laughs> <laughs> Number five, the guest list. Maybe I'm wrong, but did you or did you not mention the possibility of having Anders Heilsberg on the show? Maybe you're afraid the nicely washed hair guys would protest having a C-sharp guru on the show. Oh, and speaking of the whole stereotypical non-washed hair programmers that you've perpetuated, take a look at the father of Visual Basic and tell me which camp does and doesn't wash their hair. <laughs> Thanks for the life-wrecking show, Shannon Silverstein. Shannon, you get your pick of... Any anything you want on the on the uh, Dot Net Rocks useless crap store because that was just worth it. Thank you. It was awesome, hilarious. Thank you, and we'll take all those things to heart. <clears throat> okay. Hey, I got an email as well. Let me read this to you. Okay. Hi, Carl and Richard. I have been listening to your internet talk shows and watching your DNR TV shows regularly for a few months now. I came to know about you guys and the two sites from Code Magazine, which was presented to me by my CEO in March of 2006. Cool. Since then, I am a regular listener of your internet talk show and enjoy every show, especially the DNR TV shows. Yeah. For me, it is a double benefit. While I am learning interesting things in .NET, it also helps me improve my English by listening to your conversation. Oh, cool. It worries me that we're teaching English. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Probably not your best example of yeah, English. Yeah, we're not really good examples, I'm afraid. I bought an MP3 player some four or five months back, and I use it in my everyday travel to the office, which is 60 minutes from my home. A few days back, during a discussion with my CEO, I shared this info with him and thanked him for the magazine that he'd presented me. He was so pleased and excited with the idea that he now has promised me that every .NET developer in my team will get an MP3 player solely for listening to your shows and not for anything else. That's so cool. Neat. Undoubtedly, you guys are doing an excellent support to the .NET community worldwide. My sincere thanks to both of you and the sponsors of your shows. Best regard, Tappan Chowdhury, Mumbai, India. Wow. Well, Tappan, we wouldn't do it if it wasn't so much fun. So it's a, it's a mutually beneficial thing. We're enjoying it. Great idea to load up some MP3 players. Absolutely. I think we're going to have to do a few of those for Christmas presents. Yeah. Well, maybe very few. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. It uh, now I'm just trying to think of that list, and it, it grows pretty big. Hey, let's talk Barcelona. Well, Richard, uh, the big winner we're going to have to announce at the end of this show. But for now, let's uh, talk about the .NET Rocks TechEd Barcelona sweepstakes and we'll announce this week's winner. And, and if you haven't been paying attention, uh, it really doesn't matter because the contest is over. But uh, what we did is we had a contest for seven weeks where you would go fill out some uh, forms on our website and uh, answer a question about the week's show. And we would pick, uh, every week we picked a winner from the people that got it right. And those winners got a free piece of swag from the... Uh, from the useless crap store. And they were also in the running for the big drawing, which is happening at the end of the show. And the lucky winner, one lucky winner is getting a free ticket to tech ed developer in Barcelona, Spain, November 7th through 10th. And, uh, which you can see at shrinkster.com slash H H H. And, uh, basically the winner gets the ticket to the show, airfare and hotel. 
So awesome. Yeah. Last week's question and the final question was what computer programming construct did Ted Neward's funny dream reference involve? Of course, we're talking about the Sofia Bulgaria uh, show that was up last week. Right. If you don't remember, we went to uh, Bulgaria for a conference there. We had a panel discussion, and Ted Neward made this great off-the-cuff joke uh, with a reference to uh, a programming construct in his dreams. And the question uh, and the answer is pointers. 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 So how many answers did we get right on that one? Uh, we got almost all of them right, 99.999%. Wow. So the people who have been sticking out the contest have been uh, have been sticking in there and, and doing a good job. This week's winner, winner number eight, is Ken Dason. Ken from Marion, Ohio. Ken Dason, Dason, D-A-S-O-N. Not sure how to s- pronounce your last name, but you're from Marion, Ohio. Congratulations, Ken. You get your pick of any piece of swag at the useless crap store and stick around at the end of the show. We're going to be announcing the big winner of the .NET rocks tech ed Barcelona sweepstakes. All right, Richard, it's time to uh, bring on our guest. Josh Holmes has been a software developer, consultant and trainer for eight years. He's done extensive work with .NET in C sharp and VB.NET for the desktop web services and the pocket PC. His specialty is mobility solutions centered on .NET technologies. He's written course material and taught for the C sharp bootcamp, the VBNet bootcamp and the compact framework bootcamp, advanced compact framework bootcamp, the ASP.NET bootcamp, the XML bootcamp and the XML spy bootcamp. I see a theme here. And other classes to groups of 10 or more developers on a number of topics. As a speaker, he's participated and continues to speak at Software Development West, Software Development East, and Dev Connections conferences, VCDC. Wasn't that a rock band in the 80s? Uh, (laughs) Web Services Edge, Abasta, XML in Action, and Microsoft Dev Days, giving talks on a variety of topics, including SOAP.net with C Sharp and or VB.net, .NET Compact Framework, Software Design Model Driven Development, Ooh, that's an important one. Model-driven development, we've been talking about that. Com and XML. As a consultant, he's architected and developed web, desktop, server, and pocket PC applications. His mission is to improve, should he choose to accept it, is to improve the skill set of those pursuing the craft of software development. Recently, he's landed himself a job as architect evangelist at Microsoft from Manchester, Michigan. Welcome, Josh Holmes. Thank you very much, Carl. That was a whole mess of bio. That's what that was. That's some serious mouthful there. You've been busy. That's a lot of bio. Yes, it is. And actually, there is one thing that was not mentioned in that particular bio, and that is that I am currently a principal at SRT Solutions uh, with Bill Wagner and Diane Marsh. And right. I'm leaving them to uh, to take a job at uh, Microsoft as an architect evangelist. So. Now, Josh, uh, I first met you through Bill Wagner, who is a regional director, one of his... Uh, Shots was in the mugshot of people that were uh, posing for their portrait to be included at, you know, Tech Ed Boston, if you remember that little thing. Yep. Um, yeah, his, his picture was actually the wildest one. But anyway, I met, <laughs> I met you through him uh, because he asked me to do a remote presentation for your user group in Ann Arbor. And uh, you were the guy who knew, like, how to set up the microphones and the, the you know, ever do all the remote stuff. You were, like, the guy who knows how to do stuff out right. there. I actually, the reason I know that stuff is that uh, one of my many things that I did in college was I pioneered the morning show at Franciscan University of Steubenville, Ohio. There was not a morning show before I came on board. So I did that for uh, two years. So you produced the thing? You did everything associated with it? What? I did everything. Uh, everything from I was the talent to producing it to I was pretty much the only guy in the studio between 6 o'clock in the morning and 9. Did you? Was that you who made that stupid rubber duck sound? <laughs> Whenever somebody made a joke, was that you? Uh, <laughs> unfortunately, not only was that me, I was the guy who made the stupid joke. <laughs> Let's hear some of that shtick. Go for it. <laughs> Come on, I want to hear it. <laughs> oh, it's been it's been uh good god, 12 years 
You can uh, do it. Not quite 12 years, 11 years. Josh, uh, Josh, 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 Josh. Come on, man. You can do it. Lay a little on us. <laughs> <laughs> well, the I mean, a lot of it was trying to roll. Uh, well, it's a Catholic campus, so I was rolling a lot of um, Catholic music, jars, uh, jars of Clay, Michael Bolton, uh, lots of other interesting things. Michael wasn't quite Catholic, but he was bland enough that it, they were acceptable. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and, you know, so so it was always interesting trying to find new acts that I could slip under the radar as, uh, or, you know, new bands and new music that I could slip under the radar under the guise that it was Christian or Catholic um, and still have an interesting or cool beat because, you know, it's not known for that. No, and I bet, yeah, going after bands you could play more than once. Yeah. Yes. There's the challenge. You're not going to do the shtick, are you? No. All right, okay. <laughs> um, so you've been talking a lot lately about SQL Everywhere? Yes, I have. What is this all about? And it's not SQL Anywhere, which, or is it SQL Anywhere or Everywhere? Everywhere. 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 Yeah. It's not enough and to be anywhere. you got to be everywhere. Exactly. Exactly. The, you know, the, the anywhere would say would suggest that you're at, at one place at one time, and everywhere is suggesting that you're in more than one place at a particular time. Complete hegemony. There you go. All right, so what is this thing? So what is this thing? Uh, well, let's start with the, the origins real quickly. Uh, it actually is originally SQL Server Mobile, okay, which... Right. Is, is targeted at the pocket PC, the smartphone, those types of mobile devices. Okay. Um, and then they also, as an additional platform, added the tablet PC, and all of a sudden people realized, wait a minute, this little database engine can run on desktops because it works on a tablet. Well, what's the tablet other than what's a desktop with a you know, with, with some added APIs and some added things for uh, accepting ink and voice recognition, et cetera. All right, so the natural question then is, why this instead of SQL Express? Well, uh, the, the primary reason for SQL Server anywhere, I'm sorry, everywhere, you, now you have me. <laughs> now you got him. <laughs> the primary reason for SQL Server everywhere is <laughs> because it sits in a 1.4 megabyte footprint instead of a 53 megabyte footprint. Oh, ouch. <laughs> okay. SQL Server Express is 53 meg. Which is small for SQL Server. Exactly. SQL Server Express is, is actually quite scaled down from its big brother, but it's still fairly massive, fairly heavy. It uh, SQL Server Express also has to be installed by an administrator. Okay. Um, and SQL Server Express uh, is open and active and listening for, you know, incoming calls. By default, it does not listen for remote calls. But the fact that it is running all the time is a having an effect on your processor and memory. Uh, you know, whether or not you're running the application, and it also opens up for uh, the surface area for possible attacks. Yeah. Now you. S I want to get there, but first of all, you said that this was something that runs on a mobile device too. Is that yes, what you said? That's, so that's its starts. That's its roots. That's where it uh, where it was born. So this is like the f next step up from the mobile edition of SQL Server. The, well, this is actually the mobile edition of SQL Server. It's the next generation, would you say? Yes, and the, there's a very very slight few differences between what's called SQL Server Mobile today and SQL Server Everywhere, uh, which the slight differences are, they've lifted the licensing restriction. They've huh. made it slightly more easy for ClickOnce deployment. Huh. And they've added support for the pipe data directory, closed pipe, as their path instead of having a hard-coded long path. Hmm. So they're really That's thinking it. about the things that we're going to need when you need a little data store on different machines and you don't want to make a big production of it. Exactly. I'd like to mention that uh, this portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik, Telerik RAD Controls. 
the most comprehensive suite of components for Windows Forms and ASP.NET applications. And you can find them online at www.telerik.com. Now, um, I'm looking at, you know, Microsoft's uh, page on SQL Server 2005 Everywhere Edition at shrinkster.com slash IXT. And uh, there's a little um, legend, a little grid that says, you know, when you should use SQL Server uh, Express and when you should use the Everywhere Edition. And uh, listed here, it says for Everywhere Edition... If you want essential relational database functionality in a compact footprint. Compact being 1.4 megabyte. Yeah, and I would say, well, yeah. Pretty much any time you have a desktop application that you're, you're even a click once application would be great. Uh, ideal for mobile and desktop applications, including occasionally connected. Okay, well, I might have been using SQL Server uh, Express for that. Embeddable in applications, you know, even more luring. Free to download, develop, deploy, and redistribute. So that really doesn't tell you much because, heck, I mean, any desktop application, those are valuable assets. But then it goes down to when not to use. When you want to run as a service, all right, so it doesn't run as a service, it says. When you need multi-user database servers or when you need the full functionality of SQL Server. So that's my question it all looks good until I get to that bottom one when you want the full functionality of SQL Server. I guess right. that this is limited to, you know, it isn't going to have all the replication, it isn't going to have all the the great administration, that kind of stuff, right? Actually, those things that you just mentioned, it does have. Really? It does have, uh, well, it can subscribe as a, as a merge replication subscription, subscriber. It mm. is not capable of publishing, but is capable of subscribing. It's capable of doing RDA. It's capable of doing, uh, you know, lots and lots of those types of things. Also, the uh, SQL Server uh, Management Studio has built-in support for the SQL Server Mobile and now everywhere uh, databases. So you have a lot of that same functionality. What you don't get that you get in full SQL Server or in Express is sprocks, triggers, uh, SQL CLR, those types of things. Ouch. No sprocks. Exactly. It is data only. Just querying. Okay? Interesting. And there are some good things and some bad things about that. Obviously, the bad things are you can't run sprocks. Uh, stored procedures. Right. Um, on the other hand, it greatly lessens the attack surface because there is no executable code within the database itself. Right. You just eliminated all of the external procedures. All of those potential capabilities are gone. It's also in process, so you, you, know, you, it's, you have a more difficult time getting to it anyway. You'd have to be right. a sort of virus or something to get in there. Yes. Huh. And so it's not susceptible to the slammer uh, virus or any of those types of viruses. And as you mentioned, it does run in process. And since it runs in process, one of the major reasons to write stored procedures is so that they run on the database tier. Right. Well, it's running in your own memory space anyway. Doesn't make any difference. Right. Hmm. Yeah. What about referential integrity? Referential integrity, it does, it, it does do that. Cascading so updates and deletes. you've got a complete relational database. Huh. Now, uh, how, how is the data stored? Do you know? Um, no. I mean, I, you mean like, like underneath the, the covers, what's the actual memory representation? Yeah, exactly. No, I don't know for sure. What does the file look like? Is it a, uh, what kind of file is it? It's what's called a .sdf file. Um, and they're actually fairly small, fairly lightweight. Um, the, uh, Trying to find a quick example of one of them here on my local machine. Um, the default file is twenty to forty k, hmm. which is not a not a huge deal at all. Hmm. Before you put anything uh, in it. Before you put anything in it, right? 
Now, I heard a rumor that the roots of this product, which, of course, come from the mo- the mobility side of things, is that it's really jet. No, don't say that. <laughs> is it really? Uh, that's not what I've understood. Uh, no? What I've understood is that it is actually a brand new engine underneath uh, with, you know, written from the ground up so that they could leverage the things that were in the .NET 2.0 framework and they could uh, optimize this for devices, i.e. managing, uh, you know, the, the battery life, you know, taking into account that the battery might get yanked. Uh, therefore, they've got to be, uh, you know, they can't corrupt. Right. Um, yeah, it's and, about, and so if it's going to be a data store, it should be reliable. Where did you exactly. hear that, Richard? Uh, it's an old, that's an old rumor about mobility where you know where that library came from because I always called it SQL, you know mobile edition of SQL Server, but that it actually had its origins in Jet. But you know subsequently, if it's been rewritten, then obviously that that heritage has gone by the wayside. Yeah, it it may be. Remember, when the big problem with Jet isn't that it's not good as a single user database; it's just not good as a more than single user database. As the number right. of users Interface. rises above the level of one, one. yes. <laughs> Uh, right. But, you know, that's a separate issue and not necessarily a bad thing either. I, you yeah. know, Jet's done some amazing things over the years, so I wouldn't hold it against it if it was. Right. Now, that may be true for SQL Server CE, which was SQL Server Mobile's predecessor. Right. And SQL Server CE had a lot of restrictions, like you could only open one connection at a time, mm. and which was a royal pain for developers because yeah. we'd have a, you know, some type of watcher looking at the database, and we'd have to go make sure we had to we close that before deploying and running our new application. Oh, that's ugly. Yeah. and <laughs> But this, with uh, SQL Server Mobile, we have been able to you know, have multiple connections open at the same time and all looking at the same database, all updating at the same time, hmm. et cetera. Hmm. So, so but the whole idea is all of these apps would be running on the one computer that's running it. And really, the one process, that the one application that has access to it. Right. But that application can have as many connections as it wants, more or less. And right. can, they can all be running asynchronously, banging away at this data store. That's the idea. Now, we, do act, we can't actually have multiple applications having it open at the same time and, and, and looking at it at the same time. And they're all writing back to the file at the same time. Uh, and it does have logic to deal with making sure that it's last in wins instead of corrupted data, et cetera, et cetera. Did right. you say you couldn't do that or you can? You can do that with SQL Server Mobile. SQL Server CE, its predecessor, would throw a huge exception in your face. Uh, uh, multiple connections not allowed or something to that effect. And in, in reality is, for most applications, I just want to hold several connections. I don't necessarily want to run them simultaneously. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, Josh, have you exercised any sort of stress test on this to see, like, how you know how many records you it likes to have in its database before getting slow and that kind of thing? I have not done upper limit stress testing. Um, we have, I have done 30 plus thousand rows, and that has, you know, with, you know, getting up to uh, uh, 200, 300 meg worth of data, hmm. and it has performed just as peppily at nice. 30,000 rows as it did at uh, a few hundred. And you're testing this on a device? Uh, that was on that was on my desktop. Okay. Uh, on the device, I have had the largest database I had was sixty eight meg, hmm. and that was nuts for a lot of reasons. The primary reason being that the devices only have limited uh, RAM anyway. So that's yeah, huge on a handheld. Sure. I'm just thinking back to the days of lore when we had third-party libraries we used for data storage. And, of course, the one that immediately jumps to mind for me is Btrieve. I wonder how much of this is just like that. Here is a library from Microsoft for data storage. Put it in your app. <laughs> um, I, I never used Btrieve, so I, I'm not sure, okay. <laughs> to be honest. But you understand the thinking here that 
this is supposed to be compiled with your application. It's just why would you write your own data storage code? Why would if you don't need SQL Server, if you don't want a separate install of a data store, you want it just to be part of your app. Here is that solution, like an right. ISAM installable ISAM kind of thing. It's right. it's pretty cool. It looks compelling. I mean, one of the big use cases that it's supposed to replace is people using XML as their data store, local data right. store. Right. Right. Uh, because, I mean, I, I, I've, if you remember back to my bio, I've done a lot of XML work in my time. And XML works great until you need relational data. Right. <laughs> XML is hierarchical by nature. And unfortunately, a lot of uh, object-oriented programming is not hierarchical. It's, it's relational. And uh, as such, XML is not a great data store for that type of data. And so this is the alternative to that. This is the alternative for that. Yep. Um, also, this is going to go. This is going to scale a lot better because you can do four gig worth of data in this versus uh, you know what you can do in XML. Which I mean, theoretically, you can go much much larger than that. But uh, in all practicality, once you get uh, a few hundred meg worth of XML data, you're <laughs> you're hurting. Yeah. Now, uh, how easy is it to scale up to, say, an Express Edition or even full SQL Server if you decide that uh, you need that data uh, online somewhere? Well, if you if you need the data online, there's actually there's a couple of different options. Um, you can either just scale it up to SQL Server Express or the full SQL Server, as you suggested, by just moving the data over and changing a few of your declarations in code uh, from using SQL Server CE as the namespace to SQL Client. So it's completely SQL, com- T-SQL compatible? or Absolutely. Yeah. And I guess that's uh, now, the I mean, big strength of this approach is that you could start here with this little free data store and it's completely code compliant all the way through to an enterprise edition of SQL Server. Exactly. Yeah, that's exactly. nice. Now, the other option is is that you do have merge replication, RDA, et cetera, et cetera, built in. And so you can use this as your offline store, and you can move your, uh, you know, through merge replication, RDA, et cetera, out to a full SQL server somewhere else. Hmm. So I'm thinking in terms of the guy with his tablet in the office getting a current dump of inventory just putting it into his local store, and then off he goes on the road, and he doesn't have to connect back to the office anymore. He's got his data. He can make his changes and then merge, replicate them back into the central store. Exactly. And that also works for tablets or for laptops or for desktops, etc. And PDAs and smartphones. The example that's been used uh, a lot in, you know, trying to explain this is is Outlook. Uh, If you're you know, using uh, Exchange, you can keep the email up on Exchange, but you also have your local store and, you know, in Outlook. Yeah, the OWA. Yeah, or not the Outlook web apps. I'm talking about the Outlook offline file. Exactly. Is this going to work with system.transactions? Uh, yes, it does. It does do transactions, yes. All right. And and it does work with uh, the new system transaction namespace. I guess if it's ADONet, right? Right. Um, what about data types? Are there any data types that it does not support or supports in limited way? It does not do the the user defined types the same way that the um, you know SQL Server Express and so on do. Um, you know, so you are stuck with the types that are uh, built into it. But if you're using and, a mobile SQL, you're already used to that limitation, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Well, so anything anything uh, negative at all to say about this product? <laughs> uh, I mean, the negatives really are that it's... Uh, I'm trying to come up with negatives here. Just being what the, it is. The, the negative is that it doesn't do SQL CLR. I'd love to be able to do yeah. uh, uh, SQL CLR and Sprocks and triggers. Actually, triggers would be my number one pick if I had something that I'd like for it to do. I'd like for it to fire a .NET event that I could catch and uh, and react to if it's uh, you know if, if somebody updates a 
row from another thread and I wasn't expecting it or something to that effect. Hmm. But outside of that, it's a great little database for what it is. Um, I mean, if you, if you look back in history and look at, at uh, well, Access, the, you know, Access had a lot of issues, one of them being that developers were tempted to write code there because, yeah. well, they could. Yeah, and right. And they would email it around. Uh, well, as soon as they emailed it to somebody else, you know, your, your, your application's toast because you now have multiple versions of the truth. Right. Because two people have updated it, and you have two databases, both of which have correct data in it. Um, well, with merge replication, RDA, et cetera, we've overcome that issue because we can just merge it up into a, to a single uh, store with all of the strength and reliability that merge replication gives us there. Um, one of the benefits of Access was that you could back up the database simply by copying the file over to somewhere else. Right. Well, yep. We can do that <laughs> because all you have to do is copy the SDF file. As long as the app isn't running. As long as the app isn't running, right. Okay, but, you know, Access had that same issue. You had to close the Access uh, database in order to copy it over. And you know, the other issue that Access had, which was the real issue, was the repairing compact. I'm just wondering what kind of issues we have like that in terms of data integrity, recovery, you know, those kinds of things with SDFs. Well, with the SDF, there is the the capability through the SQL CE engine uh, to uh, compact it, and you can also encrypt it if you des- if you so desire through the SQL Server CE engine. Um, but it also has an auto shrink feature where you can just turn it on, and it will automatically grow and shrink the file as data is, is introduced or deleted. And so you don't have to worry about those same uh, uh, compressing issues that the uh, that Access had. But that, and that's very SQL Server-like. You can set up SQL Server the same way. Exactly. It, it grows space as it needs it and gets rid of it when it doesn't need it. Right. I mean, they've had a lot of time to think about the mistakes that they made with Access and have uh, corrected tremendous number of them and the relationship between i'm just thinking about what your application looks like working with this i guess it's just another ado provider right yes exactly it's an ADO, yeah exactly um yep. the you know to your application uh you know it's it's going to be looking at you know if it's a .NET app an ado.net provider and it's going to ask for some, you know, to, for a connection to this connection string. Well, in that connection string is a file path. And that, you know, it's data source equals the file path. And it just loads that file. Now, optionally, you can also have username, password, et cetera, on that because you can protect the, the file to a particular user. Um, and it's just going to load it, load the seven DLLs that are installed as the SQL Server uh, everywhere install, and it's going to load those into your own memory space. Load the file into memory, and you're good. Josh, what? Uh, when did this um, SQL Server everywhere show up on the scene? In terms of you know when was it announced, and is it available? And if not, when will it be available? Okay. Uh, well, the SQL Server Mobile has been around since uh, uh, VS.NET 2005 sure. was released and .NET 2.0 was released. And so you've been able to use it on tablets and on uh, computers that have VS.NET or SQL Server installed on them uh, since then, so uh, November of last year. Uh, so in April, Paul uh, Fleischner... Uh, you know, he made the announcement that they were going to release SQL Server Mobile for general, general consumption on laptops and desktops and so on and so forth. Um, had a huge response from the MVPs and everybody who he initially talked to, and then they made the official announcement in, at TechEd. Uh, as far as the actual release date, I believe it's coming with... Uh, Vista.NET 3.0 timeframe, so hopefully sometime in November. Okay. Um, 
And, you know, I mean, I've been curious, and, and I haven't quite gotten a complete answer on it, but I've been curious if what they're, you know, primarily trying to do is lift a licensing restriction. Why is it taking six to, not, six to eight months to release it? But I don't, I'm not sure for sure, you know, why that is. Yeah. Microsoft's a big company now, and legal moves a little slower. <laughs> That's kind of been my assumption. I was hoping there was a technical reason, but yeah, I think I think that's it. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Developer Express. Developer Express, crafting first-class tools, frameworks, and controls for the .NET developer. Improve your experience online at www.devexpress.com. Josh, what have you done with this? Um, have you done some some demos? Have you done any real work for for people? Have in terms of consulting with it? Actually, I have done some real work with this. Um, the one of my consulting clients uh, back at SRT was doing a fairly widely distributed uh, application for mortgage loan origination, and they needed offline data capabilities. And so we had basically three options. Option A, store everything in XML. Yep. Option B, try to install SQL Server Express on everybody's laptop. Yeah. Or option uh, C, the winner, is SQL Server Everywhere. Hmm. Um, primary reasons is that we went with SQL Server Everywhere over uh, SQL Server Express was because we didn't feel like the administrative hassle of trying to install, you know, a heavyweight sure. database server on everybody's box. You yeah. don't have to install anything. This is just part of your app. Exactly. The way and it should so be. With this, we have the entire app as click once deployed, including the database. Right. It's very cool. Yeah. Uh, I found the CTP edition of, uh, of SQL Server everywhere uh, available for Microsoft. I, I shrinksterize it at shrinkster.com slash IXU. So this is from June, and obviously it's a CTP, so think beta, although right. I, I imagine it's pretty ripe, and uh, it's just for testing purposes. You're not allowed to deploy it in production. Exactly. Now, my client does have a target release date of next year, early, you know, first quarter of uh, 2007, so we went ahead and got started with uh, development on that. But um, yeah, it makes sense to develop now and, and test, 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 and get a good experience with it. When the product ships, you'll be ready to go. And it's been exactly. a good experience, Josh. It's been a, been a very positive experience. The uh, the only negative experience was that they also have a legacy VB six code base, some of which needs to access this offline storage occasionally. Hmm. And so we no providers uh, to it from uh, from the the old ADO two world. There are actually hooks to it. We are actually able to get there from here. Uh, wow. It was actually quite remarkable. Um, yeah. Wow is right. <laughs> so tell me how this was a problem for you then. Right. Well, the, the, the biggest problem was actually getting it to, uh, you know, finding out that we could do it. Um, you know, there was, there was the huge heart attack when we realized that it had to happen. Yeah. <laughs> then you're thinking, uh, I'll do some kind of interop layer with a .NET a chunk of code that'll be able to talk to the data set, this is a big piece of work. Yeah, we originally went down the path of uh, looking at what it would take to implement our own record set because that's what... Don't! Idiot. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no! <laughs> and, you know, after after realizing that we'd all rather, you know... Eat hot lead, maybe? <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh Eventually, we came across Steve Lasker's blog, and uh, uh, he he was able to uh, give us a pointer to a uh, a sample where they were actually using VB6 to do it. Nice. Yeah. Yes. And so, you know, then it was just a ton of testing to make sure that our, uh, 
you know, that we could actually run the VB6 and the .NET applications at the same time, and they wouldn't uh, eat each other alive, and so on and so forth. Cool. Yeah. So that was that was pretty slick. I was uh, very pleased to find uh, Steve's uh, input on all that. All sounds very good. Okay, next topic, Vista. <laughs> oh, now, this is just a personal topic of Carl's these days, I think, building a new machine and all. Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm trying to talk to as many smart people as I can about their experiences with Vista. Uh, you know, seems to be a little bit mixed. Um, drivers haven't quite come in yet, and that's making the current, you know, versions of betas uh a little flaky, and there's some new ones. New one just came out today, actually, as we record this. RC2. RC2 just came out today. Uh, I think you I have to be a, on Connect to get that. Uh, I'm not sure if it's as wide as RC1 is. but Yeah. But apparently it has some new ATI and NVIDIA drivers, blah, 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 blah. Have you done anything with Vista? Uh, I installed it and went through some pain and torture there trying to get it to work on my Fujitsu tablet. Yeah. Um, it did actually install uh, when I did a clean install. Yeah. <laughs> when I tried to do the whole update uh, hmm. Windows version, it, it uh, that I let it run 18 hours and decided to give up. Yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and you know, Microsoft, I think, is focusing on the right things because the majority of Vista is going to come as OEM additions on new machines. Right. So you got to make sure that works first and foremost, and then figure out how to get all, all us poor souls with existing gear up. Right. The Then I did the clean install. The clean install actually worked very smoothly. Um, some of the keys and so on, uh, some things didn't quite you know, behave quite right on my box. Like I couldn't find a sound driver for, for my box. Right. Um, and the, uh, um, the Fujitsu tablet has got a, uh, it's got a touchpad and beneath it, it's got, um, a button, a rocker and another button. So it's right and left and, uh, the rocker in the middle for scrolling. And that didn't, I couldn't find a way to change the behavior of that back to scrolling. Right. Mm -hmm. It would, uh, it would turn on a, um. I don't even know what the mode is called, where uh, as you move the mouse around, it scrolls to follow the mouse. Oh, yeah, like a virtual screen mode or something. And, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I thought as soon as you said, well, I did this to my Fujitsu tablet, that's really brave because <laughs> tablets tend to be more exotic on the hardware side, so more exotic side. on the driver's side. Yeah. I would think it's like the worst candidate to try for Vista because it's, it's so specialized. Yeah. And yeah, you're probably right. <laughs> I think a lot of that is because the tablet is like the only, you know, so-called toy machine that is powerful enough to run Vista that we that I have anyway. You know, I don't want to put a a beta on my production machine. I don't want to put it on my laptop that I use every day for my work. I have the tablet for testing tablet applications, you know, the handwriting and all that kind of stuff to show people what you can do with the tablet. Um so it isn't, you know, all that critical. But, I, 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 again, I think the drivers is the real problem that people are ha that that's causing, you know, people to grumble. And I think a lot of that is just beyond Microsoft's control. This is the hardware manufacturers just uh, coming down to the wire in terms of delivering their drivers on time. I would agree with that. There are a couple of other things that, I uh, have have grumbled about quite loudly, at least in person and on the phone with people. The uh, two major ones are that SQL Server 2005 is the uh, uh, Service Pack 2 is the only database that's actually supported by Vista. Wow, which is wow. that's pretty exotic. You know, is, the very very latest one only. Exactly. And so we're, you know, it's not going to do 2000, it's not going to do 7, it's not going to do 6.5, it's not going to do SP1. Yeah. Well, do you have Service Pack 2? of No. It doesn't exist yet. <laughs> oh! <laughs> yeah, but you get this big warning label that says that this is only going to work with Service Pack 2. 
Yikes. So then you go spend about three hours Googling for, you know, SP2, and, and you can't find it. <laughs> and then you find workarounds that actually do get SP1 to work, so it'll warn you, but it will work with SP1. Non-supported configuration. Exactly, non-supported configuration. And so that that was actually one of my larger complaints. That is a nasty whammy. Like, that's a real problem. We need yeah. a database. <laughs> and the second the second thing that I have complained about is that uh, I actually have XP, and I learned this little tidbit from uh, Tim Landgrave. I actually have X, S, uh, XP installed on a 4-gig thumb drive. Right, yeah. And so I can just stick my thumb drive in and boot, okay? Well, I can also install to an external USB drive. So rather than running virtual PC, I can just plug in my external USB drive and boot to the external drive. Well, hmm. Vista doesn't allow you to do that. Vista doesn't allow installs to a uh, or boots from a uh, USB uh, device. Huh. That's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Well, that's because the USB key is supposed to be used as extra memory for the operating system, so it gets confused, right? I guess. That's as good a guess as I've had. <laughs> but uh, overall, my impression of Vista has been fairly positive. It's uh, it's it's fast and it's it's relatively stable. Uh, you know, at least once you get into the RCs. Um, but uh, I don't know. I think you're right, though. Drivers are not there. I think they'll come, but they are uh, far later than I would like for them to be. Well, I think the video driver part of Vista is a very challenging part because of the the Avalon thing, the re, the update to GDI 32, the replacement of the way visualization is done on Windows means that the drivers have to be written differently, and that's just not that easy. Right. I don't think anybody really knows what they're doing in that area, and everything's in flux. Right. It's uh, it's very time. much like trying to put extra cylinders in your engine while it's still running and being built. Yeah, but most of the time when I when I fire up a Vista machine, I'm amazed it worked at all. <laughs> Josh, do you have any other geeky hobbies that uh, we'd be impressed with? Uh, geeky hobbies um, that you'd be impressed with? Yeah, you know, like neurosurgery, rocket science. You know. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, the easy stuff. Yeah, um, yeah. No, Summer I reading. mean the, the the other things that I do with my time. Um, I golf badly, but I enjoy it. I coach my kids' soccer team. That's cool. Uh, we've Very actually cool. got a winning record this year. Very pleased about that. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, it's a U10 travel team, so we travel all over southeastern Michigan playing against other towns. And uh, we've actually got a, a three, one, and two season so far. Wow. So Nice. One of the things I noticed in your bio was your interest in model-driven development. So how do you manifest model-driven development? Uh, well, I start with a tool that a good buddy of mine, Martin Shoemaker, wrote called Tablet UML. And uh, Tablet UML allows me to sit down with a uh, prospective client and uh, take notes on my tablet with my pen. And at the end of it, I've got a UML model. Your $3,000 cocktail napkin. You're absolutely right. <laughs> Uh, it, it is it is interesting that the uh, $99 tool, Tablet UML, has sold a number of $2,000 tablets. Yeah, that's interesting truth. Uh, and I equate that back to stuff like when, how many Apple IIs did VisiCalc sell? You know, the right, <laughs> exactly. the right application sells the hardware. That's what yes. it's all about. Yep. I mean, the cool part about it is that I can take that model and actually do other things with it. And that's that's the one difference between that and the cocktail napkin. I bet uh, you the cocktail napkin's battery life is better. It, that it is. That it is. <laughs> but you're right. I mean, the big problem with a cocktail napkin is then you have to keep the stupid thing. Give me something to do with this drawing after I've drawn it. Right. Yeah. The other problem with the cocktail napkin is I can't put it up on the whiteboard, you know, on the overhead, and have the client 
correct me as I'm going along. Right. Well, trying to make it a living document, and I say that in quotes, this idea that it actually, the cocktail napkin made perfect sense four years ago, but it's still just a cocktail napkin. How are we going to keep this model moving ahead as we actually start to build things, find problems, and you know requirements change, and reality hits, all of those sorts of things that you have a tough time with physical items on? Josh, Absolutely. You, you said you use the uh, use UML. Do you, do you not use the class designer? Uh, the class designer in Visual Studio? Yeah. Uh, I haven't really. I mean, I've, I've done some demos with it, but I really haven't used it much. So this is interesting. Um, from what I know about UML, which I learned from Rocky, and it's not much, and I don't claim to be an expert on this by any means, so don't. I'm just repeating what I heard, um, which is a story of my career, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> the, the UML doesn't have uh, constructs like events. And so it's kind of difficult to be very specific in terms of um, code architecture of how things are going to work. And, you know, along comes this great white horse designer. And, you know, as soon as it shipped, everybody stopped talking about it. Does anybody use this thing anymore or at all? Not to my knowledge. What's up uh, with that? There, there's just not a tremendous number of people that, that, that use it, uh, partially because a lot of people don't know how to use it. I would Agree, I think. It <laughs> just hasn't gotten enough love yet. But you would think if it's a great tool, if it's valuable, that that people would. Yes, I I think that I think that people would use it if they knew how to use it and in what circumstances to use it for. Um, it's really uh, more of a enterprise modeling instead of a solutions modeling. Does that make sense? So it's it's better for modeling infrastructures and large-scale applications, interaction between web services and those types of things, rather than getting down to the nitty-gritty of. But we're talking we're talking about two different designers. I think you're you're talking about the topography uh, designer. Yes. yes. Yeah, I'm talking about the actual code designer where you can. Oh, the, yeah, the class diagram. Draw classes right. you and mentioned stuff. That earlier, didn't you? Yeah. So um, this, you know, this has, it's not UML, so it isn't, you know, standard right. in that way, but it does let you define events and it does let you go all the way uh, with code to wherever you need to go. And uh, I'm, every time I hear somebody say, yeah, I use UML, I'm just curious as to, as to what, you know, is it because we're comfortable with it? It doesn't, it can't translate into code and vice versa. Right. What, uh, why? Why? Well, the reason that I use that I don't use the class designer is that it slows me down. Now, um, I mean, I'm, I'm a big user of Code Rush, sure, and I'm far faster in text when writing code than I am with the class designer. So, to you, UML is all about sketching. It really is. I mean, I, I, I sketch my, you know, use cases of what's the, what's what's required of the app, my activity diagrams to kind of get the, the flow. Because activity diagrams really are just flowcharts, right? Um, and then I get the real high-level picture with class diagrams and component diagrams. But you know, that's that's not. I'm not designing down to the to the method level. You're not you're not trying to map that model all the way down to the code. No. And I guess the, that was the big selling point of the class designer. And I guess you know maybe that's not all that valuable. Maybe people just do want to sketch. And then code and make those separate. Maybe separate we're just activities. not there yet. We're trying to get a tool that goes from end to end like that, under the belief that it's necessary. And I still would argue whether it is or not. I mean, I have used the class designer to open up a large project and kind of get a big picture view of it. But what I do is I, I open up the class designer and then immediately collapse it all so I can look at the relationships between all the uh, different classes. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing that it does is create the hierarchy of classes. Yeah, reverse exactly. engineering. Yeah. So I see the way you use UML, truly cocktail napkin approach, except that you instead of having a piece of paper, the same way that you replace a piece of paper with a word processor, you've replaced it with a tablet and a, and a bit of software that allows you to make the, di the document dynamic. Exactly. And then that is a starting point. That is an image that can be printed out put in front of an architect who then sits down and starts designing the application based on that model. Yes. It's a 
a way to capture what the application should and will do, but not what it actually does. Well, John, <laughs> okay. <laughs> Goodness knows we wouldn't want to get in what it does. That'd ruin everything. Exactly. Well, that's what the class designer does. Right. The class designer will reverse engineer and tell you what it actually does. <laughs> so, Josh, just before we leave, tell me about what you're going to be doing at your new job. Uh, I am going to be the breadth architect evangelist for the Heartland District of Microsoft, which is in the central region, which is Michigan, uh, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee. That's where all the architects live. Apparently. Exactly. Because <laughs> they don't live out here. <laughs> and so my and job if you is find to... one have him call me <laughs> what's that if you find one have him call me well find a find an architect an architect call you. yeah yeah uh tim langrave um he's about as pure of an architect as i have found he's a good guy too yes he is yes he is uh don't have him write code for you oh uh, nice one <laughs> <laughs> what's that there goes his career there you go no, no, he, he, he is an amazing architect, but that means that he lives in that 30,000-foot stratosphere. Right, right. And he'll readily admit that, that, that he writes prototypes. Yeah. And those prototypes, they do what is necessary to, uh, to demonstrate a point, but you know, then, then uh, he will hire a firm like SRT Solutions to actually do a lot of the other implementation. Yeah. So Javal Lowy is the same kind of guy. You know, he, he knows a lot about all these technologies and can can get you the test harness and the and the prototype. But uh, you know, there you go. Right. I wanna hang on to this word breadth. I I'm presuming it's not defining your width. No, no, it is not. Uh the breadth architect, there are breadth and depth evangelists. And so uh, in, in, in this area, uh, Jennifer Marsman is our depth architect and Drew Robbins, I'm sorry, depth uh, developer evangelist. Okay. And Drew Robbins is our breadth developer evangelist. And I, so, I think I'd be good at breadth, don't you think, Richard? Yeah, <laughs> yeah but I think you're talking about something else anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, Carl would be good at breadth in both connotations. Yeah, <laughs> bad breadth. But the bre- the depth architect, or sorry, depth evangelists deal with the top 100 accounts in the district. Right. So in the Michigan, Ohio, Kentucky, Tennessee, obviously that's going to include uh, Ford, GM, Chrysler, uh, Domino's Pizza, Quicken Loans, et cetera, et cetera. Right. All those big guys that are in that area, that's depth work. That's depth work, yes. And they get very focused, hands-on, lots and lots of attention. The breadth evangelist deals with everybody else. Everybody that's outside of that top 100. Okay, I, that makes more sense to me now that you're yeah you're dealing with the the much wider scope of potential problems in a lot yep. of ways. I mean, the top 100 companies in the heartland have very similar problems. They're large problems, large companies with lots of gear, lots of people. You know, that's a particular set of scenarios, very enterprise. You have to deal with more than that. Yes. And, and a lot of my clients are going to be interfacing with the depth clients. Um, you know, and, and, and so there's going to be a lot of interaction there as well. But, you know, I'm really going to be focusing on dealing with a much larger audience. And, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a very different... Uh, type of a job than the depth. Uh, yeah, I can imagine as somebody who's a supplier to Ford being very interested in talking to you. Yes. Not a big, big company, but still interrelated with that bigger company. Yes. All right, Josh. Well, uh, good luck with your new job. Sure, Thank you're not you, going to need it. You're going to tear them up, I'm sure. And uh, thanks for being on the show. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, Josh. We're going to look for your first book here very soon. That uh, uh, humility and how I achieved it in 10 easy steps. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot, Josh. All righty. Talk to you later. Thank you. All right. There goes Josh. And Richard, before we end the show, we have some business to take care of. Ah, the big winner, the Barcelona sweepstakes. That's right. 
Now, first of all, let me go through all of the weekly winners and announce their names again. Right. First, we had, and I apologize for, you know, if I mispronounce any of your names, but first we had Maha, or Maja, from Warsaw, Poland. We had William from Lake Mary, Florida. We had uh, Johan from Esbo, Finland. We had Milton from Baldwin, New York. We had Jens from uh, Magdeburg, Germany. We had Didier from Brussels, Belgium, Pavel from the Czech Republic, and this week's winner is Ken from Marion, Ohio. And the grand prize winner is... Johan Sundström from Esbo, Finland. Woohoo! Yeah! Congratulations, Johan. Congratulations! We will see you in Barcelona in November 7th. Warm up your best radio voice because we're going to stick you on the show. Absolutely. You get an interview. And thanks to everybody who participated. And, uh, uh, you know, we have these contests from time to time. you got to listen to win. What can I say? We'll see you next week on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks can be found online at www.dotnetrocks.com and at msdn.microsoft.com slash dotnetrocks. .NET Rocks is edited each week by Jeff Maciolik, that's me, and Carl Franklin, who is also executive producer. All music heard on .NET Rocks, including Toy Boy, the theme song, is created and produced by Carl Franklin and Franklin Brothers Band. Carl never sleeps. .NET Rocks is produced for Franklin's Net by Plop Productions, providing professional audio and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. Plop, it's time to get your impact back. Toy Boy!